Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Well, welcome. I mean, I don't want to bury the lead here. The Nose is back after a brief hiatus. Uh, And we'll be doing Noses going forward, but maybe not every single Friday will we be doing Noses. Uh, But we're excited to do this one. We are going to talk first about Hassan Minaj, who up to about five minutes ago was the clear, I think, heir apparent to the throne of The Daily Show. And then things have gone very, very wrong for him, starting with a piece in The New Yorker uh, on September 15th. So we'll explain all that to you. And then uh, second, we will talk to you about four short films by Wes Anderson, all of them adaptations of Roald Dahl stories. They're all on Netflix right now, uh, but kind of separately packaged for you. (laughs) I I assume this has something to do with award nominations and things like that. Uh, But anyway, all of that is to come. Uh, But now it is my great pleasure to tell you who's on the nose. I sound like I haven't done the nose in a while, don't I? Uh, Sean Murray is a stand-up comedian, writer, and the host of the Nobody Asked Sean podcast, S-H-A-W-N, if you're typing it into your search fields, which I'm sure you will be. Tracy Wu Fastenberg is development officer at Connecticut Children's. Bill Usman is professor of media studies at Sacred Heart University. And uh, let's get going with uh, Hassan Minaj uh, and what has happened. I will try to quickly just set this up for you. Um, Hassan Minaj uh, is a comedian, uh, and uh, he's uh, somebody who has hosted a show called The The Patriot Act. uh, And he tells a lot of stories about what it is like to be a person of color, particularly uh, from uh, his background uh, in the U.S. at a certain time. Uh, And Pretty obviously, somebody at some point got hold of Claire Malone at The New Yorker or some editor at The New Yorker and said, you know, a lot of these stories he tells are not true. I mean, they're like really not true. Uh, And she did a full-scale investigation, which I know seems a little bit ludicrous, investigating a comedian. But we will talk about whether or not that is a ludicrous enterprise. Uh, She did a full-scale investigation, and it turns out that – Uh, The allegations are essentially correct, many of the things that are alleged in his routines, and we'll try to cover some of them in specifics, uh, are not true. Uh, But one of the other things that becomes clear is that being a comedian is a little bit like being a Supreme Court justice. You get to make up your own code of ethics, and then one day, suddenly, that's a problem that you did that. Um, So uh, let's get going with this conversation. Um, And Sean, since we have a fully licensed and accredited comedian uh, here on our panel right now, Maybe you want to go first. Uh, as we go along, I will try to explain some of the stuff that has happened, some of the things that have come out. But I don't know if you want to give us sort of your general overview on, on what's happened here and how you, as someone working in more or less the same field, feel about it. 
Well, I have a real problem, Colin. Uh, welcome <laughs> back to the show, by the way, or welcome back to me. Yes, rather. exactly. Uh, I have a real problem with this story because Hasan Minaj has exposed all of us comedians as filthy liars, which is uh, <laughs> very true, both both on and off stage. Uh, but um, you know, my issue with it is like, as a comic, and I've seen a lot of comedians have this response, which is like, like, why is somebody even investigating the the validity or truth of a comedy act in the first place. And also that's my daughter just trying to be on, uh, on mic for a second. Um, <laughs> uh, and also like, um, like, so what that it's not true, which is like, I think a valid response in most cases in the sense that like, yeah, we recognize that comedy isn't every, every time some comic says, I, I just walked to the store the other day, didn't happen the other day, or even if at all. But I think the issue that I agree with um, like the perspective of, this, of the piece is that like so much of Hassan Minaj's act is predicated on the idea that he is speaking the truth to his, like he's not doing comedy in this, in a way that like Stephen Wright is doing comedy. He's doing comedy in a way where he's like speaking almost like, like a personal essay with some humorous bits to it. So it's like to, to find out that this is not actually all authentic actually does cause a problem. And I think, his act suffers because of it. Yeah, so let's uh, put some meat on the bones of this conversation, give you kind of a sense of what, what it is we're talking about. So uh, the clip we're going to play in just a second count is A2, but uh, this is from his show, The Patriot Act. Uh, oh, no, this is how he named his show, The Patriot Act. Uh, it's from a special called The King's Gesture. Ju- the King's Gesture. Uh, so here is Hassan Minaj telling a story. This is A2. Through The Patriot Act, the feds were watching us, and they were getting kids to give false confessions in Dearborn, Michigan, in Chicago, in New York City at NYU. Then I find out in Lodi, California, one town next to me, there was a 16-year-old kid. His name was Hamid Hayat. He gave a false confession. This kid served 20 years in prison. I think about Hamid all the time. I'm like, what if I complied that night like Hamid? Dude, being a smart ass saved my life. (laughs) That's why, when I finally got my own shot to do my own show on Netflix, I named that Patriot Act. It was my middle finger to Brother Eric, you understand? I'm gonna name my show after the same program you used to spy on us. So the problem with all this is the brother Eric is uh, Minaj's description of an undercover FBI agent uh, who was infiltrating uh, people in the Muslim American community uh, and was, in fact, uh, spying very specifically on Minaj and his family, uh, and that Minaj uh, even kind of trolled him a little bit in the moment, said that maybe he wanted to you know, take up flying lessons, that they'd, they'd sniffed this guy out somehow. They, they thought he probably wasn't legit. Uh, and then you hear this incredible denunciation of him in this piece. The difficulty being that none of that ever happened. There, this is actually based on a real FBI agent who was doing things more or less like this. He just wasn't anywhere near Minaj and his family. Uh, and uh, that's where we begin to into, enter into some of these problems. So, Tracy Wu Fastenberg, uh, you have the floor. Where do you want to go next with this whole question? So I think it seems like the big controversy or the big discussion is how much, I guess you could say, artistic license 
should he be taking with the truth to uh, polish his art? Um, you know, we went back and forth on a lot of this during some email discussions here. And, you know, I think it lands on the fact that, yes, some of what he's trying to say is political. And so stretching the truth there is is problematic. But I think what he's done is really hurt the brown community as far as he has this great platform. He could be, you know, a great voice for bringing attention to these things that happen or have happened. And that's what he's trying to do, except he loses his credibility with the embellishment or fabrication of the truth. Um, you know, I, I think about back in COVID. So, uh, you know, I had two incidents of what you could call anti-Asian rhetoric out in public. They were just words. There was no violence. There was no um, physical anything there. And if I had gone around saying, hey, this thing happened and I embellished it and took part of somebody else's story and integrated into mine and it turned out to be fake, that would hurt my community. You know, all the aunties and uncles who were getting attacked through COVID because they were Asian. And then you have those folks that are already doubting these stories that come out. And it's easy for them to point to Minhaj and say, oh, see, they have to make it up. Right. It's, it's not really happening there. They're exaggerating everything. And then that takes away from real things that are happening. My other issue with it is that some of his, his recounting of these stories is not funny. He's not using it to be funny. And I'm not quite sure what angle he's taking, whether he's trying to build his credibility, uh, garner sympathy so people will be more um, interested in what he has to say when it comes to his act or follow him on social media. It just seems a little more self-serving than it does to actually enhance his art. All right. So um, uh, this is there's so much to talk about here. And I've been fascinated by this thing since I started reading about it in mid-September. But before we go to Bill, let's give you another kind of sample of this. This is also from the King's Jester. This is a description by Minhaj of something that happened to him in the middle of all these controversy. This is A3, Cat. Yo, you got fan mail. I go, give me my fan mail, Carlos. He grabs a stack of letters. He hands them to me. I rip it open. I flip it over. And all this white powder falls into the stroller. And it falls on my daughter's shoulder. Her neck, her cheeks. And she's staring at me. And I run upstairs and I tell Bina. And this time I can't lie. We rush down to NYU, but this time we go through the emergency room. And the moment they see the baby, they just rip the clothes off her and they take her away. So, Bill Usman, this goes to Tracy Wu Fastenberg's point about a lot of this stuff isn't done to get a really great joke or to heighten uh, the comedy of what he's doing. It's to evoke a certain kind of pathos. So what the audience now needs to know is this didn't happen. White Powder did not get on his child at any point. She did not have to be rushed to any hospital for that particular reason. But Bill, I'm just interested in in where you want to take this conversation. Well, I should start by saying um, I'm a fan of Hassan Minaj, and um, I think I still am. But this has made me really kind of reevaluate what he does in some ways and i think and you know sean spoke to this i i think to to me it's a matter of genre and what genre is he really doing here is it theater is it comedy is it social commentary and of course the answer is 
like all of the above, right? That it's some type of hybrid of all of those things. If it wasn't social commentary, if it was pure theater, then as far as I'm concerned, blow the doors off. Like it doesn't matter how the veracity of whether these things really happen to you or not. If it's just pure comedy, nobody ever expected that, you know, Rodney Dangerfield or Don Rickles or somebody were telling true stories. We don't know whether Rodney Dangerfield really did want you to take his wife or not. Uh, didn't matter. But you can hear in those clips that you played that it's not all comedy, that there really is social commentary here. And I think that then does make questions of veracity important. You know, on his show, The Patriot Act, they employed fact checkers. You know, no pure comedian would need a fact checker. The fact that they had to employ fact, checker, fact checkers just suggests that there is something else going on here. And I think that's what to me, kind of lies at the heart of why this is troubling and something that is worthy of investigation and discussion. Yeah. And uh, we should say that uh, uh, rather tellingly, they employed fact checkers. But uh, in Malone's piece in The New Yorker, there's right. one point at which he wants the fact checkers sent out of the room. He feels like they're slowing down the creative flow uh, yeah. during a final rewrite. So get them out of here. I didn't know also that shows like The Patriot Act, and I assume this would include, say, John Oliver uh, and, and other shows like it, uh, presumably The Daily Show, hired journalists to write briefing memos based on reporting and research that were meant to serve as the factual basis for these these kind of 25-minute sets. So, I mean, Sean, there's so much here, including the fact that, um, I mean, my main contact with younger people is through teaching. The younger people that I teach, and we do talk about uh, about political comedy, uh, Hassan Minaj was, to them, a pretty potent symbol, and maybe the person they were the most enthusiastic about there. Uh, this generation is looking really for more diversity uh, of viewpoint, more diversity of performer. Uh, we've all just been through <laughs> the, the the summer of Strike Force Five, where it's like five late night hosts who are all white guys uh, talking about uh, their various problems, uh, and so you you look. Over here, we don't have Trevor Noah anymore. There's a way in which he was uh, Minaj, fairly or otherwise. He's kind of a standard bearer for a possible change of the guard or at least a continuing effort to kind of diversify this genre. So screwing it up is not just his problem. It feels like a lot of people's problems. I agree. And I think it's the ultimately like it's... Um, I mean, obviously, it's a screw up of his own, you know, doing. But like, that's the problem with it. Like, is that he has purposefully crafted this image of himself as this sort of truth-telling, journalistic bent, having, uh, like, not even purely a comedian. Like, he he is like Patriot Act is not a comedy show purely. It is like an extension of like what he was doing on the Daily Show. Or, or you know an extension of a, a daily show type uh like uh a perspective so it's like yeah it's it, it's harmful in the same way that tracy was saying it's harmful to communities of color it's also harmful to um people who are doing actual journalism where it's like you're just making this stuff like that's the thing with like that's i have such an issue with like those clips that you play because like this is not funny at all just do theater if you want to lie if you want to tell a story about somebody spilling potential anthrax on a girl that happens to be your daughter write a play about a guy named Wasan Jinaj, 
who has the daughter who got powder spit on her. Why would you like like you're you're not even trying to be funny. You're just trying to to garner some sort of sympathetic uh response from the audience. It's it's just I don't know. It's 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 it's, it's very upsetting. I mean, I was uh, moved to recall Wu, uh, a moment in the movie Broadcast News where in Broadcast News, uh, William Hurt plays a news anchor who's kind of faked something, faked an emotional response to something. It's an emotional response he's already had, but then he kind of recreates it for dramatic effect. Uh, and um, the Holly Hunter character says, you crossed a line. Uh, and he says, well, it's hard to tell because they keep moving the sucker. Um, and, and I do feel like there's a little bit of that here. I'm not defending Minaj exactly, but if I were defending him, I think I would say it's, you know, for all of the reasons that you guys just said, it's, it's sort of clear that, you know, when Jerry Seinfeld's talking about going to the supermarket and something <laughs> happened to him, you know, that didn't really necessarily happen. He's just, he's doing stand-up. Stand-up's a thing, you know, and, and... On the other hand, when people are doing very confessional kinds of things, presumably there's, you know, a, a lot of truth uh, in, I mean, I'm assuming Hannah Gadsby isn't lying to us when she when she tells mm. stuff like that. But I guess we, I'm sort of wondering about that, too. There's also this, and Jason Zinneman wrote about this, I thought, very powerfully in the New York Times, this area of news, the stuff that John Oliver does, the stuff that Trevor Noah's done on The Daily Show and John Stewart before that, there's this sense that you are plugging into some kind of notion of fact uh, and that you, you have some different cover with the audience than, say, Jerry Seinfeld does. Yeah, and I, I would agree with that, too, because I think about, you know, throw a couple ex-boyfriends under the bus here, but, you know, they watched <laughs> The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, and that was a source of news. That's how that what helped. That's what helped shape opinions for some people. Um, and they may not watch CNN or read The Times or whatever actual journalistic source that some others may. And so because by presenting itself as quasi-journalistic, people will take some of that to heart. You know, and I've actually struggled with this conversation a little bit because at first I'm, I had to ask the question, are we holding a person of color to a higher standard in truth-telling than we would someone else? And so in this, I have to say that in a way it, it's important to because there or he's taking liberties with something that has a much larger effect than saying, you know, oh, you know, I went out with this girl and she stood me up and, you know, hid in the bathroom for four hours or whatever, you know, the typical made up story might be. And so that has to be just a little higher bar for both those reasons of what he's choosing to embellish and the fact that, yeah, some people do see these comedic news commentary shows as their source of news and what shapes their thoughts, opinions, and feelings about things. Yeah, so I, I've only got time for one more thing here. Um, and Bill, um, I guess you have to make the ruling for the whole, whole episode about this. But there's something about the desk of the power. Daily Show. <laughs> give me a lot of power. There's something about the desk of the Daily Show, right? It really has uh, in the Stewart uh, era and then going forward with Trevor Noah it has a certain majesty to it at this point, you know? Mm. I mean, it really, there's a set of expectations that go along with it. Uh, and, and some of those expectations seem to be almost about using comedy to referee a very turbulent, a very chaotic news and fact landscape. And, and I'm just wondering is if there's any way that Minhaj can sufficiently rehabilitate himself so that he can get that job and do that job. I personally 
don't think there is. Um, and we we talked about that in our email discussion, and we all, I, I think, I don't want to misrepresent anybody, sort of landed at the same place, which is it just doesn't work with, you know, the as you said, the Daily Show has a certain sort of brand. It's a it's a particular kind of franchise. And you mentioned earlier, you know, you and I both teach about political communication and you on your show not that long ago had a political scientist on talking about the actual real effects and power that political satire has in our public discourse. And so, you know, it's it's it it is sort of this space that I think because of what's been revealed about his playing around with the boundaries of truth and you know pushing more for what he calls emotional truth that leaves behind factual truth completely i don't see how they can possibly make him the new face of the franchise and i think that's a real shame because i think he potentially could have been really excellent in that position all right. On that disappointing note, we have to take a quick break here. <laughs> I love to disappoint yes. people. Well, I mean, we're heading into some Wes Anderson stuff, so I mean, the disappointment will just continue. Uh, but um, well, we're going to take a little break here, and Kat and I have some other stuff that we have to do while that break is happening. Stay with us. Don't go away. Kat, you're in charge. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. And we are back. Uh, this is The Nose. With us today, Sean Murray, Tracy Wu Fastenberg, Bill Usman. Our other project for the day today uh, has been to watch and then discuss for your benefit uh, a Roald Dahl set of adaptations by Wes Anderson, or a set of Roald Dahl adaptations by Wes Anderson. Uh, these are on Netflix. Uh, and uh, Wes Anderson, the noted and sometimes controversial, including on this show, uh, director has written and directed these uh, adaptations using essentially an all-male cast and really four principal actors, uh, all of them pretty well-known, Benedict Cumberbatch, Rupert Friend, Ben Kingsley, and Dev Patel. Uh, there's some other people involved as well, but I think they are the ones that dominate and ro rotate through all these projects. So um, <laughs> I don't know why I'm chuckling, 
but just that Wes Anderson always gets kind of people kind of going. So, so Wu, maybe you'll get us started here. Well, let me just actually let me set you up uh, because this might be helpful. So, when I first noticed that these things were on Netflix, I was watching them with my significant other, and I just turned one of these things on and clicked on one of them, or, and she started to watch it. And she started to realize what it is, what it was. I said, "These are some shorts." Some Wes Anderson shorts, uh, adaptations of Roald Dahl. And she, in the tone she doesn't customarily take, went, how short? How short? They better be short, because I've just decided I don't like Wes Anderson. <laughs> and, and then was kind of swept up in them and wound up watching all four of them for over the course of 90 minutes. So take that idea, maybe, Woo, and, and run with it, because I know you have your misgivings sometimes, too. Yes, I would say that my first reaction when reading this was similar to hers of shorts. Okay. All right, I think I can do Wes Anderson in shorts because sometimes Wes Anderson's stuff is just a, a little much for me. Sometimes it feels a little self-indulgent. I understand he has great attention to detail. He has, you know, the visuals and, you know, evoking certain things. Excellent. People are huge fans. I'm definitely a hit or miss person. Um, but I actually did really enjoy these. You know, I do. I grew up with Roald Dahl. I did, never read short stories, though. So, so most of these were new to me and then sent me down a rabbit hole. Um, but they were really engaging and interesting, entertaining. I have a huge crush on Rupert Friend um, and maybe a little one on Dev Patel. So visually, very happy to to be watching them. Um, but they were entertaining. They moved at a great pace. Each one was its own sort of little gem or jewel. Um, I definitely have my favorites among the four. But I think it was a great way to portray Roald Dahl, you know, the way that they incorporate the visuals of his own writing spaces and things, the teeny tiny details. I think in a short, it's much easier to take those in because it's short. You know, there's only so much you can absorb over an amount of time, but they were a lot of fun to watch. I definitely had like some really tense moments, especially during um, Poison. And I think they're, they're worth watching, even if you are not a Wes Anderson fan. Maybe even if you hate him. <laughs> right. So, yeah, I, I, that actually might be something I'd be willing to double down on a little bit. But before we go to the other two panelists, let's give you a little sense of the sound of it anyway. So much of Wes Anderson is visual. But this is from the wonderful story of Henry Sugar, which I believe is the longest uh, of the four shorts. You're going to hear Ben Kingsley as Imdad Khan uh, and Dev Patel as Dr. Chatterjee. B1. 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 Sorry. By 1915, I could read a book straight through, cover to cover, blindfolded. I had it. At last, I had this power. Of course, as you know, it became my entire conjuring performance. Audiences loved it, but no one ever believed it to be genuine. Still don't. Even doctors such as yourself, who blindfold me in the most expert fashion, refuse to believe anyone can see without his eyes. They forget that there are other ways of sending an image to the brain. Imdad Khan fell silent. He was tired. What other ways, I asked. Quite honestly, I do not know. The seeing is done by another part of the body. Which part? And so, Sean, I have a couple of thoughts about this, but I think it was especially during this particular um, installment. Um, by the way, these things are not all packaged up. They are like sitting separately on Netflix, and I think they're sitting there probably to qualify for some kind of short film nominations, either in the Oscars or elsewhere, because they don't want to be a TV series or anything like that. Um, but... Watching this one, I had this little moment of thinking, wow, this is getting really close to the experience of reading, 
but somehow they're flung up on the screen. He's using that kind of Russian nesting doll thing that he likes to do, where we see Ray Fiennes as Roald Dahl at the beginning of all these things. But then the narration is picked up and kind of traded around by different characters. Uh, and I just thought, this is you know, I mean, you can't really put the experience of reading on screen, but this feels something like that. But, Sean, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, I just want to say, first of all, I think I've made a huge mistake because I thought when we were looking at Wes Anderson shorts, uh, you meant to go on the Hermes <laughs> website and look at yeah. a pair of baby blue above the knees. So You uh, stole my joke. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> but you're entitled to it. <laughs> no, um, I think that what you just pointed out, Colin, is um, something I really keyed in on and enjoyed a lot, which is that like I like the idea that if you're going to adapt a short story, the experience of reading it, like I don't think like The Swan, for example, I think is a perfect example of um, uh, the way he adapted these is perfect because so much of that is the the, the tension, the tension of it, and the the suspense of what's happening to the the kid when he's being tied to the train tracks and whatnot is about the internal like sort of narration the, the narration um from first person of the 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 kid and you wouldn't get that if you just filmed it purely in the same way like like the descriptions of, of using Roald Dahl's language as um narration um voiceover or not voiceover because the, the characters are often on screen saying it, it's such a brilliant way to to mimic the experience of reading without actually having to read it and like you said you can't ever really totally recreate that but i feel like this is as close to reading as you could possibly come on film and it's also because it's wes anderson it's also still vis very visually interesting so it's not boring in the sense that like i don't think bo reading is boring because every time i'm on the show i recommend a book as my uh recommendation but i do think like a lot of people do find reading boring and i feel like this is a perfect marriage of those two like experiences yeah and bill another thought that i had was if people don't like Wes Anderson, to Wu's point, they might like this, and I think there's a couple of reasons. But one of them is there's a lot about this that keeps it from becoming too Wes Anderson, -y, too dominated by the Westhetic, as people sometimes call call it. And one of the you, you get these short things. They are they start out as Roald Dahl. Roald Dahl is right there, front and center for us to look at in the form of Ray Fiennes. Then you have these very strong actors who are really allowed mm -hmm. to. I mean, you mm -hmm. know, the typical Wes interesting thing is to hire like Tom Hanks and give him six lines. You know? <laughs> uh, so no chance of Tom Hanks taking over your movie. But there's a way in which, you know, even just listening to Kingsley's voice there, you just think, oh yeah, Wes Anderson is not going to keep his foot on uh, on Ben Kingsley's neck for very long. Ben Kingsley is going to Ben Kingsley at some point. Yeah. And well, since I can't make my shorts joke, since Sean already did, I guess I have to respond to this. Um, I'm one of those people you mentioned who I, I guess I wouldn't say that I'm someone who doesn't like Wes Anderson. I'm someone who has at times liked Wes Anderson and that other times have just been kind of put off and, and left there going, what did I just watch? What's happening here? Um, and, uh, you know, Maybe this is this is blasphemy uh, for real Wes Anderson fans, Colin. But um, my favorite Wes Anderson before this was another collaboration, so to speak, with uh, with Roald Dahl. 
um i thought fantastic mr fox was a fantastic film and it was probably uh the wes anderson film that i've enjoyed most before this there's something about the the strange off-kilter approach of a rolled doll and the strange off-kilter approach of a wes anderson that i think really meshes really nicely and it does come out in these shorts and the fact and and we should say these are really short <laughs> like a uh, wonderful story of henry sugar is like 40 plus minutes but the other three i think are between like 17 and 19 and so they're so compact and they they give you such a powerful little you know jolt I, i'm i'm a big reader of short stories anyway so that really worked for me but there is a way as you said, that he allows within that very compressed frame the actors to 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 act and still delivers this 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 powerful punch with the really interesting visuals and the rapid way that everybody is speaking and their little side glances and all of those, you know, little subtle West And you know, has anybody ever called Wes Anderson subtle? But, you know, there are like little subtle touches, like a little tiger walks through the background and looks at you for a second and then keeps walking. All of that just comes together really nicely in these, I think. Yeah. So um, I think there's another thing that's done very interestingly here. And Kat, what I'm going to do, I'm going to pull in uh, a clip from uh, the first segment. We were going to use it in the first segment. So uh, let's play Cat A1. This is also from the Harry Sugar, the Henry Sugar uh, short. And this is Benedict Cumberbatch as the uh, aforementioned Henry Sugar A1. Had this been a made-up story instead of a true one, it would have been necessary at this point to invent some kind of a surprising and exciting end for the thing, something dramatic and unusual. This story isn't fiction, this story is fact. The only untrue thing about it is Henry's name, which wasn't Henry Sugar. His name has to be protected, still must be protected. Apart from that, this is a true story. And because it's a true story, it must have the true ending. Here's what actually happened. So I think, Wu, that one of the things that Wes Anderson is very interested in, it kind of touches back to Hasan Minaj in the sense of who's telling a story? Who is, who is I in a story uh, if the story's in the first person? Who is the storyteller? What is the status of the story? And he does this a lot. I mean, in Grand Budapest Hotel, you start, start out with Tom Wilkinson, who somehow or other turns into Jude Law, who somehow or other gets a story out of F. Murray Abraham, and then finally... <laughs> Finally, you actually start the story. In Asteroid City, there was all this kind of noises-off stuff going on with this theatrical group, and you'd see them, uh, you know, grabbing a cigarette out on the balcony outside the stage door in the middle of the, the movie. But I think here, Wu, I think one of the reasons we're seeing so much about the writer and, a, you know, a perfect recreation of Dahl's writing room and then all these, you know, actors doing narration is – he wants us to think about whether sto where stories come from, what kind of thing a story is. I don't know if there's any there there, any more content in that vessel, but um, your thoughts would be very of great interest. I think with you know with with this as well as Minhaj, it's, you know people, right? People are going to be set up a little more when they think something's true. I mean, even that little footnote at the end of Swan too, of you know this where the inspiration came from. Well, then that sent me down a Google hole, right? Like, so I was just that much more invested in it and interested in it, thinking that it was somewhere based in true events or reality. And I think just sort of having that additional consciousness about what you're watching, what you're reading, whatever it is, it just 
deepens the levels of interest there, too. Yeah. And, you know, Sean, one of the things Anderson does a lot, I think they're always, you know, the actors, but they're always sort of random people like running around to Bill's earlier point, people or tigers or whatever, <laughs> running around in the background of things or, you know, interns having to be shooed away by Steve Zissou or something. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I, I thought one of the things that I really liked was, and I think this is typically true in the, especially true in Swan, which is this flashbacky story that where the actors kind of come and go from inside these big brown hedgerows, uh, which have doors in them. And Rupert Friend is constantly sort of motioning to stage hands or, I mean, throughout these stories that they'll get a prop or, you know, some teeth to insert or something. Or, But he's also kind of waving them around. So go over there. Uh, and there's something about that that I found, I mean, it just could be just idi- idiotically charming to me. But I, I thought there might be more than that. This isn't like tearing down the fourth wall. It's something else that he's doing here. Yeah, I, I've really enjoyed that as well. And I don't entirely understand what he's getting across by doing that. But I do appreciate it in the sense that, like, we, he's calling attention to the fact that, one, this is a story by like using Rodol mm-hmm. as, like, sort of a bookend in the story. But also he's calling attention, like, doubly to the fact that this is, a production of the story and um i don't know like i i i appreciate like one of the things that people get really hung up on adaptation about being like the purest adaptation of something like it's like this needs to be direct from the book to the screen and i actually really appreciate even when it doesn't work i don't necessarily even like examples that i don't necessarily like i really appreciate when someone takes advantage of the form that they're using like it's like why would i just put the book on screen if i could do something completely New and I, and I love that about what he's doing with these. And also, can I just say this one thing: the 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 the, the bad words that I've heard throughout this entire uh, segment about Wes Anderson are just tearing me apart. He's my favorite director. And I don't want to hear another <laughs> bad thing about him. He's my favorite. And, but but I will say, Bill Fantastic Mr. Fox, Mr. Fox, is an excellent movie. It's an excellent movie. So you're you're not wrong to say it's your favorite because it's 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 in my top five. Uh, but. I, I don't know. I kind of got lost, but I just I had to defend my, my friend Wes. Yeah, I mean, I love Wes Anderson, too. And usually this just degenerates into David Edelstein telling me how wrong I am to love Wes Anderson. But um, but uh, the part of Wes Anderson was uh, the part of David Edelstein today was played by Tracy Wufastenberg or something. I, I don't know. Uh, but we have to stop there anyway. Yes, they're on Netflix. They're waiting for you. And they could be consumed. I mean, we just watched them all in one night. We just watched the whole 90 minutes, sort of back to back to back. But you could do something else with that, too. You know, you can do immersion or you can just pick through it like a little box of chocolates, which is, of course, from a different movie. All right. We'll take a little break. We'll come back with some endorsements and recommendations. The technical producer of today's show is Kat Pastor. The producer of this particular episode uh, is Jonathan McPants, producer of pretty much all Nose episodes. Um, so uh, we have with us today Sean Murray. Don't forget to check out the Nobody Asked Sean podcast. Tracy Wu Fastenberg, Bill Usman, they're all going to make some recommendations to you right now. So, uh, Sean, why don't you go first? Is it going to be a book? I'm going to guess it's going to be a book. You know, it's funny. I was just laughing to myself because, like, I just – pointed out how I always recommend a book <laughs> and then I do not have a book to recommend today um which was bad form on my part but uh I was um recently uh Max 
HBO Max. I want to say HBO Max instead of Max because Max is a stupid name. Um, put a bunch of AMC uh, shows on their service, and I was like, oh, I haven't watched Halt and Catch Fire in forever. I hope it's on there, and it wasn't. And then I was very upset because that's one of my favorite shows, and it made me want to buy uh, it on iTunes, but I didn't because the cost of living is higher than ever. But Halt and Catch Fire is one of the best shows of the last 10 years. It's an AMC show about, like, the Silicon Prairie in Texas and, like, this company uh it's about computers and it's like it was started out as like a madman kind of knockoff about computers but it ended up being something completely different and, and really good not quite as good as madman which is the best but very good show all right uh and so tracy Fastenberg, what have you got for us well i wouldn't be doing my job that i've i've held here on the nose for quite some time by telling everyone it is pumpkin spice season oh no it is <laughs> <laughs> i had my first pumpkin spice latte today i did wait until october but it is okay to now embrace all of your fall flavors and tastes and all of that and um no matter what colin says it's still cool um and i will also endorse um a movie that i've watched many times and actually many adaptations of pride and prejudice i love jane austen love the 1995 version but the 2005 version is leaving netflix soon so i had to do my rewatch of that and rupert friend is in there so there's a nice little through line there there is a nice through line there and we talked about it earlier in the week because they kiss uh, at the end of that adaptation which is not in the book and was somewhat controversial um all right so bill usman what are you going to recommend so I'll bring the books in this time. Uh, I'm, I've been doing a bit of a Richard Russo binge recently, and he has what is now a trilogy of novels about a fictional small working class town in New York State featuring a great character, uh, Sully Sullivan, and then all of the people in his orbit. And I'm currently in the midst of um, this trilogy, uh, first one called Nobody's Fool, second one called Everybody's Fool, and the recently released third, uh, Somebody's Fool. So you can easily remember the titles and that they're being endorsed by a fool in his own right. Uh, And then as part of that, I also can endorse the 1994 film of Nobody's Fool, uh, starring Paul Newman and a slew of other really great actors, Jessica Tandy, Melanie Griffith, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Bruce Willis. It captures the spirit of the books really well, and it's just a really enjoyable watch. So I feel the most important thing that I can do uh, as a recommender is to revise something that I said that I now don't agree with anymore. And so I, we did a show where we talked a little bit about this series, uh, this podcast, Strike Force 5, which are the five arguably leading late-night talk show hosts, in order to raise money for their staffs while their staffs were on strike, uh, they were doing these podcasts. <laughs> they, they always sounded really kind of terrible. And there is this sort of problem. It is five white guys. Uh, and initially, I had my doubts about it. And I think I voiced some of those doubts. I just want to say this thing kind of grew into it got more and more interesting. They really started to enjoy each other's company in a certain way that I think maybe they didn't at the beginning. And, and they really learned to play off each other. And uh, on a long drive back from vacation, we wound up listening, I think, to two or three episodes. And if you only wanted to listen to one, I believe it is episode five, where uh, Jimmy Fallon does this thing where he plays this game where he gets in touch with all the wives uh, and asks them questions. But because he's Jimmy Fallon and he's kind of an airhead, he messes up the whole premise (laughs) of the game. (laughs) He doesn't ask the questions the same way. There are just so many methodological problems with his game, and the other four of them spend the entire time just destroying him in a very, very funny way. So uh, 
Strike Force Five, maybe just list, try listening to it. Um, very nice movie. Nothing, you know, super, super special or pathbreaking. Flora and Son, I believe it's on Apple Plus right now. Stars, among other people, Eve Hewson, who is the daughter of Bono, but is a really, really interesting talent in and of her own in 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 and of her own right. You have seen this movie before. I mean, there are versions of this movie uh, about somebody kind of using music to get out of kind of a working class jam or something. <laughs> but some interesting stuff is done with it. Joseph Gordon-Levitt is very enjoyable too. So I'll recommend that one. All right. So we have to say thank you to this wonderful panel. It's good to have the nose back. Good to hear your voices in my headphones. So thank you, Tracy Wu Fastenberg and Sean Murray and Bill Usman. Now, Kat, you and I have work to do.